Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. It's been kind of quiet on the Trek news front this week, but you know, it's the good kind of quiet. The kind of quiet that means that everybody is head down, hard at work, and all the new Trek shows that are in development. So no news this week. What I have for you instead is much better. I spoke with Stuart and Thad of the Delta Flyer podcast last week about the TNG episode Justice, which in addition to its exploration of capital punishment, praxis of the Prime Directive, and creative uses of double-sided tape, it's also an examination of utopia and the unknown unknowns lurking in a postulate no-place. Mankind has speculated about the possibility of a perfect society ever since the first caveman just left his trash bags right outside the door of his cave. I mean, who does that? Plato posited a utopian society in his republic that organized citizens into gold, silver, and bronze tiers. Which, first of all, nice rigid class structure there, guy. But also, D&D currency denominations are not an encouraging organizational structure for your society. The top one-tenth of one percent of platinum people are now worth just as much as the bottom 90% of electrum people. Utopian fiction really picked up steam in the late 19th century as industry did the same. Do you see what I did there? The world was becoming completely different. Cities were growing. The social order was shuffling like a deck of cards. And every dude who took Econ 101 at his prep school was jamming paper-thin characters into his term paper and calling it a novel of the future. Many of these future visions of utopia were wildly implausible, shallowly conceived, or had major socio-political axes to grind, but they didn't let up. And unsurprisingly, dystopian fiction also came into prominence around this time, as there were plenty of people who were more wary than optimistic about the changes taking place in Western society. Utopia and dystopia are often two sides of the exact same coin in fiction. Change is good for some and bad for others. After all, one man's new life of opportunity and adventure in the off-world colonies is another man's waterlogged crapsack apartment in the Bradbury building. Star Trek's answer to the utopia question is post-scarcity humanist socialism. Piece of cake, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Free hot fudge sundays and never-ending holodeck sunsets are a great sales pitch but we are a little fuzzy on the rest of the details. Despite the fact that every iteration of the Trek franchise continually renews its commitment to those utopian ideals, the fans sure like it when Trek explores the seedier side of its supposed humanist paradise through militaristic exploits, like in the episode Yesterday's Enterprise, technological body horror like any Borg episode, or the skullduggery and deception on display in episodes like In the Pale Moonlight. So which is it? Space hippies or happy jackboots? Blowing on a flute or blowing away the enemies of the Empire? Are we magnanimous or mendacious? What's the real appeal of Trek? Those are the simple, basic questions I put to Lyda Gold, writer, Trek fan, amusements editor, and contributor to Current Affairs, a bi-monthly magazine that analyzes politics and the arts. Lyda wrote an article last year that made the rounds called The Dismal Frontier, in which she brands the first season of Star Trek Discovery as bleak, dystopic, and traitorous to the spirit of the franchise. And she did it all without mentioning the Klingon redesign even once. Take notes, trolls. Lyda and I talked about what's at the soul of Trek's depiction of utopia, the recent glut of dystopic fiction, the S-word, that's socialism in science fiction, how Trek has tried to challenge its own utopian ideals, and how Discovery can get and has gotten better in its second season. All that coming up right now, plus stick around after for links to more of Lyda's work and what's coming up next on our show. And with that, let's get underway. Joining me on the show today is Lyda Gold. She is a writer and Trek fan and the amusements editor for Current Affairs magazine at currentaffairs.org. Lyda, welcome to the show. Hi, it's happy to be here. Uh, good to have you. Whenever I have a new guest on the show, I always ask them how they first became a Star Trek fan. Do you remember when you first discovered Star Trek? Yes. Um, I started watching uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager when they were first aired, and I'd watch them back to back. And I was totally in. 
I was okay. especially it, like really it was like Deep Space Nine. I was totally in on, and then, like Voyager was like as good as I could get to. Um, and then yeah, I uh, I didn't watch it again for many years, and then I f- have friends who are really into Next Gen, and they got me into Next Gen, and I've I've never loved it as much, okay. but I like it, and I went back and I watched just about all the original series, not quite all yet. Because it's kind of a slog. Let's be real. Um, yeah, it can be. <laughs> it's a different, uh, absolutely different style of storytelling. Yeah. Um, but I find, I don't know if it's just um, I'm the me TV generation, but I uh-huh. find it somewhat uh, somewhat comforting sometimes. You know, it's got it's got some of that like old world sci-fi charm that like sort of like golden <laughs> age. Like it, it has a lot of references to the Bible and to Shakespeare. And it's <laughs> yes. it's kind of charming in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it can be a bit tedious, though. <laughs> now, when you started with DS9 then and then mm-hmm. went on to Voyager, did you find yourself uh, feeling lost because you hadn't seen uh, TNG or the original series extensively? Not at all. Uh, and it, it's a funny thing because people ask me all the time, like, I've never watched Star Trek. Where do I start? And I often mm-hmm. just tell people to start with Deep Space Nine because I think you you don't really you, – you kind of get it in the world building. Yeah. Like it's it's lovely to and when I watched Next Gen later to like have details filled in about like Worf's life especially I remember being just like wowed while I didn't know about Worf. Oh sure yeah yeah he's just a, a guy that just shows up in the fourth season for oh, you. Oh yeah yeah, yeah. And right. you totally miss all of this this is back and forth with the Empire and being kicked out and brought back in and what's going on. Yeah. Great world building like that you can kind of jump in anywhere and there's more to be filled out but you have such a good sense of the world that you kind of don't need. You know, you can you can come in at any point. You wrote an article for Current Affairs um, mm-hmm. in May of last year titled uh, The Dismal Frontier, where you took issue with the tone of the first season of Star Trek Discovery, uh, specifically that it didn't seem very fun and that it didn't resemble <laughs> uh, any other series set in the Star Trek universe. And one of your points is that Trek's vision of utopia, that is a humanity that it's got its problems mainly worked out, um, that has been key to the franchise's appeal. Why do you think that is? So uh, there really are not many stories like like Star Trek. I mean, uh, outside of Ursula Le Guin's Ecumen novels, there's very there's very little, in, especially in popular culture, in the way of utopia. Um, that's not that's not a common theme. Utopia is really hard to write. I'm really I'm really obsessed with utopias. I'm reading a lot of them. Okay. Um, they're often really boring um, <laughs> because they're tough. It's <laughs> tough to write a story that is exciting when um, you know characters fundamentally get along and are trying to solve problems yeah and it's much easier to have big drama and blood and space explosions and and things like that Mm -hmm. um so i think it's and at a certain point you know there's what makes a particular sci-fi story what it is you know i mean you can look superficially at star wars and star trek and be like well they've both got spaceships and aliens and but they're very very different, and you couldn't just take one story set in one and, and put it in the other universe. It wouldn't really work because they have different themes and ideas, and they, they are based on different things. And it's not just aesthetics and nouns. It's you know they really are different stories. Yeah. So to try to do a Star Trek story that isn't a utopia, um, a weird choice, a weird mm-hmm. choice, and I'm not convinced it worked. There are movies, and there are particular episodes I can think of that veer off of that idea of dystopia i mean mm-hmm. it, it's in the background it it supports you know the entire premise but like like star trek nemesis is just such a depressing oh yeah dark film uh and it takes pl- a lot of it takes place on or near romulus which is a world that is not doing very well is mm-hmm. something of a dystopia so yeah i don't know i i, I think that i I agree that it's important uh, to Trek storytelling. Um, what I guess I want to know is like how you think that Discovery is really um, is is not living up to that. And before uh, you answer, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, address the the stark division that seems to exist in Trek fandom over Discovery mm-hmm. in general. I mean, there are people that love it, there are people that hate it. Um, there's people who love the um, the sort of war aspect of people that don't people can be really nice about it. They can be really mean about it. And I, I just, I'm trying to remember if this happened with deep space nine, with Voyager, with all these other series, but it just seems so such a stark division between fans that should be getting along because they like utopian fiction. People on the internet are being mean over something petty. I don't have any proof of this. But it's what I've heard. <laughs> so wild. <laughs> yeah. It's the first time. Um, so, you know, so I wrote my review about the first season. Um, I'm watching yeah. the second season. Oh, yeah. And I really like it. Okay. <laughs> I know that's like a shocking 
departure because we, we did it we got my her review, <laughs> my review was very scathing um but i actually think that they they answered a lot of things that were really bothering me mm-hmm. and they answered them in ways that i found very satisfying um i think when P- pike shows up at the end of the you know he shows up in the first episode but at the end of the end of the first episode he says and we're gonna have some fun along the way and I think it's, I mean, I think that's really great. He's signaling to, I took that as signaling to the audience, like, this isn't going to be like the last season. Because, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, even, you know, I love Deep Space Nine. It's my favorite one. And Deep Space Nine can get dark. It has some very, dis, you know, it has some very distressing episodes. You see the darker side of the Federation. It's where they introduce Section 31, yeah. which plays such a role in Discovery. But at the same time, the... The char- so the characters themselves, they, they live in a utopia. The Federation is a utopian society. And they are based on what appear to be socialist principles. And Manu Sadia goes into that in his book about it. Because it's, it's always kind of in the background, the economics of it. Yeah. The, they, are treat each- they, they, they are not our humans. They're not like the normal humans that we're used to. They treat each other very nicely. And you know, they are generally friendly with each other. They can be sassy. That's one thing I really like about Deep Space Nine is the characters sass each other a lot. His yeah. friends sass each other. Yeah, it's not quite as treacly as TNG. No offense, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, they. This is a different world. This is a world where there is there's no scarcity. There's plenty of abundance. People can everybody. There's full equality. There's no racism. There's no sexism. People can really rise, you know, if they have the talent, and people can do sort of whatever they want. So these are this is a, these are different kind of people. And the first season of Discovery is. You know, it's brutal. People are terribly brutal to each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I don't buy it. Well, I, that's honest and fair, I think. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, maybe if they had flipped them, if it had come in and it had been, let's have some fun. And then, oh boy, we did something bad or, mm-hmm. you know, Burnham makes a big mistake and then we have like a war season. But oh, yeah. yeah, when it comes right out of the gate like that, you think that's exactly what it's going to be. Your Your mm. comments about humanity being like i've always thought of them as aliens kind of like they're us but they're not us Mm -hmm. and they're they've put all their prejudices behind them but they're also really self-conscious about it like they're which could be good or bad like it's Mm -hmm. they're always like talking about how how uh, accepting and open they are you know Mm -hmm. but sometimes maybe they buy their own publicity like a little too much and they overlook uh certain prejudices that they might have and as far as like their utopia goes i mean it's going pretty great like you said it's uh, post scarcity Mm -hmm. um they have a lot of things figured out but you know war is still a thing Mm -hmm. you've got the encroaching at some point we have to have a talk in this you know utopia about like the rights of ai uh, because that's becoming a thing uh i think a lot of first contacts still regularly seem to fail (laughs) with with aliens (laughs) and almost every godlike alien that we meet is really mm-hmm. unimpressed with us. And maybe that's just a, a feature, uh, not a bug, of being a omnipotent uh, being, but they're all just like, yeah, you think you're pretty great, but you're not that great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love all those tropes of it. I think they're fantastic. All the real drama of, uh, of, of being a person is, is sort of pushed off onto the aliens. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah. the Klingons represent a more aggressive side and, and Vulcans represent a more logical side. And that's... The humans are almost... Uh, almost lovable stand-ins for like the, well, the real drama is happening all around them. Yeah. But I think that has to remain centered. And even, you know, it's funny because you're talking about a war plotline. Deep Space Nine has its war plotline. But only at the very end of season five does it actually start happening. It's a long, slow buildup. Right. And it kind of justifies all the darkness. Um, but even in then, there's... Um, there's still like there's still fun. There's still characters having a good time with each other, being yeah. funny, randomly doing a silly baseball episode for no reason. <laughs> um, you know, I was actually I was actually talking recently to a friend of mine whose uncle um, has some developmental disabilities, but like loves track and is like very, you know, he knows everything. He's like super obsessive about it. And he, he also hated the first season of Discovery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and his comment was on it was it, it it had no light. Which I thought was just like the perfect encapsulation and like better than my essay, honestly. It didn't have any light. <laughs> nobody has any fun. Still in the second season, nobody has any real fun. Nobody ever like has a beer. 
I'm waiting yeah. for it. I just want Burnham to have like half a beer. Like sit yeah. down. She never gets to sit down. Yeah. There was one. And part, I've just come to accept that uh, the portrayal of Burnham. I don't really know a lot about uh, Sonequa Martin-Green. I mean, she's certainly mm-hmm. um, a powerful actress, but I wonder if every role that she does is this sort of earnest and clenched. Yeah. And it kind of bugs me, but I've kind of just accepted it as like, because now that she's less of, you know, the the main only protagonist, like we uh-huh. have a crew now, I've just accepted it as like, okay, well, that's how she is. That's fine. But mm-hmm. when you have to follow her around all the time, I find myself gripping, you know, the arm right. of the couch and kind of grinding my teeth a little right. bit. Yeah. Just take a spa day. I'm yeah. sure they've got a spa. <laughs> yeah, and she had one great uh, scene this season where uh, where Tilly is trying to uh, figure out this May thing. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of losing it. And she goes to Burnham and, and Burnham's like totally cool and totally like talks her down. And like, hey, we're going to work this out. No problem. And I was like, wow, this is like the most relaxed I've ever seen Michael Burnham. Yeah. Yeah, she's almost better when she's solving other people's problems than when she's... <laughs> yeah, there I... you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not throwing quite as much on her um, as last season. That was another one of my objections. As much as I like Burnham as a character, the, this idea, like, one, having her as a protagonist without having her be captain is, I think, a little bullshit. For your oh. first black woman character, don't like it. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, yeah, like if you're gonna have your first black woman character as your protagonist, you know, let her be the captain or not. You know, it's kind of it's it's a weird choice. Um, but she's so centered in the story in the first season. She's kind of the only one who can do anything. Everything sort of happens around her. Yeah. And she's sort of a hero in a way that I don't doesn't none of the shows really like that. The captain might be the main character, but everybody else like really gets their moments, and you really get to know them intimately from their own point of view. And they all get a chance to shine and do something stupid, and you really get you really get to experience it because it's also it's part of like the socialism is also in the storytelling. Yes, because it's not this is not the story of the lone hero who can do everything and who's forced to do everything. And it was like brutal watching Burnham have to do everything last season. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if that is it just it was so important to them to tell this story about this one person, mm-hmm. or if it's just losing sight of what you uh, pegged as the, the socialism of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably the second one. Like, I really mm-hmm. enjoy Discovery. I think there are some really great sequences. But generally, it's, like, okay TV writing a lot of the time. Yeah, There's a lot of, like... I, I hate the fact that every single episode has to open with, like, this unnecessary purple voiceover, you know, like... <laughs> Sometimes in life we have to blah blah. Just just <laughs> the start the show. Terrible. I know. Just start it. We don't need oh that. My God. The, but they're, I, really, they're really bad. Yeah, but a, you know, five six years ago, I guess that's what they were teaching everybody in uh, in film school <laughs> to do. So they do that every time. Um, I wanted to go back really quick to something that you mentioned about how God and Shakespeare were mm-hmm. the uh, two big pillars of the original series. Mm-hmm. And uh, that extended into TNG. There's a lot of like godlike aliens yeah. that they meet. We just did an episode, um, we talked about justice, and in that episode there is an alien race uh, that is being caretaked uh, care, care by, <laughs> by a, a caretaker uh, godlike being, and they just call him God. And I just like... I wonder if, like, we could uh, clearly, like, there's a whole, you know, Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, atomic baby boomer sort of thing going on with that. <laughs> Do you think that 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 kind of story is is dead, like, or should be dead in the 21st century? Um, Gene Roddenberry and all these old men, like, sticking these god figures in to for us to have to connect with or get approval from or something. You know, honestly, before the second season of Discovery, I I would have said so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I like this Red Angel storyline. I think it's you know they finally have the special effects to pull it off. Uh-huh. I think it's the big because you know Q is just a, an actor, yeah, who snaps his fingers. Um, the the prophets are you know there's some lighting going on, but they're just they're just actors. There's it's hard <laughs> yeah. to really convey this <laughs> sense of ineffable mystery. And and the ones in in original series especially it's 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 just a guy in a toga usually. They're always very Greek looking. Um, I mean it's it's cute, but. Yeah, but no, the Red Angel's uh, creepy and disturbing and looks really alien. And uh, yeah. I, I'm finally buying that, yeah, that there is this ineffable being. I, I think it's good to put humans in their place. Um, <laughs> I think it's good for us to look at the galaxy and not think that we're hot shit. Right. We could do with a lot more of that. <laughs> and it's cool, like you said, that it can look weird and truly alien instead of, oh, it's Abraham Lincoln. Be a movie board. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one of your comments in the, in the, uh, in your article was especially stinging uh, to me um, that you said that uh, Discovery was a hellishly 
depressing portrayal of diversity where equal representation means a roughly equal chance of being brutally murdered in space. Uh, which I think is true, uh, definitely <laughs> of the first season. And there's this thing in uh, Trek fandom or enjoyment of Trek where people seem to really like, uh, they like the values of Trek, but they also like the episodes where we're shooting things up. You know, where yeah. the Borg are coming, we're blowing uh, things up. Yesterday's Enterprise, you know, we're at war, mm-hmm. the war season of DS9. And I think it's kind of like a replicate your cake and, and eat it too sort of situation mm-hmm. because, you know, the message is, uh, usually like that war is bad, but you you know you still get the pew pew in there. It's, it's, I think of it as the um, the sort of Star Warsing of Trek, trying to add all this uh, sort of action that's not really related to any kind of theme into it. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is kind of the contradiction of Utopia, and like with re- writing Utopian storylines, mm-hmm. you still have to make it ex- interesting and you still have to make it exciting. And the the next gen writers would tear their hair out over Roddenberry's insistence that everybody had to get along. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and <laughs> I can see why. And so I, I think, and again, because Deep Space Nine is the one I return to as my, my favorite and the one I first saw. So it was sort of the one that set up what I, I personally feel Star Trek should be like, though I don't think that that's true for everyone, that everybody has to agree with me on that. That, you know, you, you buttress these dramatic storylines by having quieter, softer moments. It's actually something that I think is really missing. As much as I'm liking this season of, of Discovery much better, they, it's too much going on. These storylines are too tensely braided together. Yes. Um, I think in season five, is, oh, sorry, episode five, um, Burnham, Burnham has like, she runs through all these like different emotional things so quickly. Like she's just seen Saru almost die. Right. Uh, Tilly's, her best friend is missing, possibly dead. She yeah. runs into Giorgio and then into Ash like five minutes later. Yeah. And it's she doesn't have any emotional time to really process what's happening. So she sort of she sort of shrugs it off. Yeah. And it's something that's actually it's funny because it's a little mini trend I'm starting to notice in prestige TV and the way that it's plotted hmm. that uh, there's often just like a ton happening at once. And the characters emotional arcs are sort of disconnected from the yeah. plot arcs because they don't really have time to process what's happening to them because you, you're always running to the next thing. Sure. The There'd be, there's no problem with having, you know, Burnham's big day where all this stuff happens, but right. the, the script doesn't, or, and the uh, scenes don't show her it, it reacting, interfacing with it like that. Like, geez, she's just kind of showing yeah. up in each scene. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And she's, and this is a, a person who struggles with her emotions. So it was, this would be really interesting to see. That's where, yeah, you should do it. Yeah. 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 But it's not, but they're just, we're, we're rushing to the next point. We're rushing to, everything has to be too exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, even the uh, beginning of the most recent episode, episode six, um, which I, I actually really liked this episode a ton. But there's a scene, um, the scene right at the beginning where Burnham and Pike and um, Ash are all talking. And mm. the camera, they're just talking about like what's going on. But the camera is like whooshing around them very dizzyingly. Yeah. Yeah. Like over and, and it doesn't it's doesn't add anything. It makes things feel dramatic, more dramatic than what they're talking about. But it's I, I think the, the showrunners are scared that we're going to lose interest. And I appreciate that there's a lot of competition for very exciting television, but I think it's okay to, you know, chill out, slow down. This is these are chill people. We're all trying to have a little fun. If you um, are making Star Trek and you're worried about that, I mean, this is a series that you know, a guy plays a flute, you know, and it's and it's riveting. So I mean, I, I think they can have a little bit of uh, faith in the audience. It seems yeah. like dystopian fiction is is on the rise recently. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want to make any amateur predictions about it being a reflection about turmoil in society. Although I think that that seems to follow. I don't know if you've heard the theory about uh, vampire movies and zombie movies. Oh, is it about um, like rich people and poor people? Is that like the like the twin fears? Yes, sort of. Um, I, from what I understand, and I might have this backwards, so mm-hmm. uh, you can look it up online. But uh, when Democrats are in power, uh, I believe vampire movies are popular. So we get like. Mm-hmm. The, the Clinton year, no, the Obama years, of course, uh, Twilight. Yeah. And then when like Republicans are in power, zombie movies are popular. And the idea is is that it's a reaction to to the uh, administration. Vampires are uh, bloodsuckers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. are. They tend to be effete. Uh, or this is all stereotypes, of course. Right. Right. Um, they tend to be foreign. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, zombies are mindless and consume and are in hordes and uh, the whole Dawn of the Dead type thing. That is a really interesting theory. Yeah, it's it, all of the, the various Star Trek iterations really 
they have a lot to do with the time period that they're made in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting to go back. Like the Borg, as, as fascinating and as interesting as the Borg are, the Borg represent a fear of the Soviet Union. And, and like not entirely that, but mm-hmm. like that's at least part of informing what the metaphor is, that it's you know, the collective mind yeah. versus like these individual minds. Yeah, and then I think the darkness of Deep Space Nine is sort of, you know, and then faced with the Dominion, and the Dominion is in some ways representative of arguably the American Empire, but like the darker version, because they're going around conquering people, and they use soft power and treachery to do it as often as hard power. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, you know, they install uh, former uh, former military generals as, uh, as leaders, which is super a thing that we've done. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's... So, one of the things that I find really interesting about Discovery, especially in the first season, and a little bit in this season, is that it's responding to the time that it's in, but not always in a way that's critical. Sometimes it's sort of, it's taking on some of the characteristics of the the, the neoliberal age without really even noticing. Mm. And especially, so I really wanted to talk about um, the end of episode five. Sure. Because there is this weird, weird scene that I don't understand. Um, between it's between um, Pike and Leland and um, Admiral Bad Choices. What's her name? Admiral Cornwall. Bad Choices. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Admiral uh, Lorca. It was not. Right. It's 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 yeah. Not slut shaming here. That was just a bad choice, and I'm not over it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 unprofessional. <laughs> it's, it was very unprofessional. <laughs> yeah. You know, seriously, with your subordinates. Rolls. Right. Who you've come to yell at, by the yes! way? Yes. All right, I'm done yeah. yelling at you. Take your pants off. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's kinky. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and so so here she she comes in to yell at Pike and Leland, and they've just gotten over having this this argument. Well, they haven't even really had the argument, but they're upset with each other mm-hmm. because they both kind of feel betrayed in different ways, and they're old right. friends. Right. And they she tells them that they have to work along, and they kind of side eye each other, and then she says they have to cut the manlier than thou bullshit. Right. And that is the weirdest thing because, one, they're not behaving in a very toxically masculine way at all. They have, like, legit beef with each other and they're not being aggressive. They just side-eyed. And this is also, like, our post, you know, post-misogyny future. There is no – well, there is no manlier-than-thou bullshit. It almost (laughs) never comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually challenge, like, friends of mine who who are, like, even more into – into Star Trek than I am to like think of an example and only one person could think of an example in a, a TNG episode where uh, Jordy grows a beard and he gets defensive about his beard and there's like it's the, <laughs> yeah and it's it's it's, it's Bev uh, you know she's she's doing poker with them and right and right. yeah and Riker says my beard is not an affectation they'll get really defensive that's like the only moment of and like and then she kind of like shames him like okay boys yeah, yeah. put them away yeah yeah exactly and that's like but that's like the only moment it's really, it's like, if there's toxic masculinity in Star Trek, it's very, very small. And so it was this weird sudden signaling that she's telling them that they need to get along for feminism, basically. Right. <laughs> and then because this is a kind of, one of the things that like the the neoliberal structure has really glommed onto itself is sort of this fake wokeness where like, it's feminist to have like a female head of the CIA, that kind of thing. Like it's, <laughs> or every every judge you see in like a cop show is like yeah. a, a woman. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that's and, that, and that's feminism because she's she's locking away the bad guys and there's right. no interrogation of what, who are the bad guys and what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and then and then that's in this yeah in this the scene re- really immediately right after um, Admiral Bad Choices goes on to to lecture Pike. Um, Section thirty one may not be the shining beacon of righteousness conduct of righteous conduct you want it to be. And then she says, nation building is never pretty. That is the unappetizing truth. And you know it. And I don't know what nation she's talking about. Do you know what she's talking about in this scene? It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't. They have just, <laughs> they have just um, sort of solved the riddle of the sphere at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they also have gotten Tilly out of... Um, out of the mycelial network. Yep. So as far as nation building, is it in reference to uh, the Klingons? Were they talking about the Klingons at all in that scene? Not in that scene. They haven't come up in this episode at all. This is huh. this is only in the context of we need to you need to work together to look for Spock to solve the signals issue. Right, right, right. But why does she say nation building is never pretty? What I is she talking no about? Yeah, that's 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 very confusing. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a, a line or a, or a piece that was from some other script or there was some element that was cut. That's that's strange. It's super weird. And I, it, it, that was my first thought, too, is that it got it got cut. But I think it's also just like it's on, right right before this scene came on. There was an ad for uh, NCIS. Okay. And there was like some like dumb bullshit about like a suspect being like I'm not gonna talk to you and you guys are like stormtroopers and the and the, and the and the cop was like oh, I wish I could wear stormtrooper armor so it like I was like is this a scene from NCIS like what show am I watching <laughs> and it oh. it was kind of like the like the neoliberal consensus like breaking through into Star Trek and like like running into the room like we need to you know nation building is, is never pretty but we have to work together with these clandestine intelligence organizations and that's just how it is and it's for feminism so you can't complain and it's great because it made no sense in the context of anything that was happening <laughs> and no story editor caught it and I'm yeah. like really interested in everything yeah. that went into that moment <laughs> you, you got your neoliberalism in my Star Trek. Yeah, it was weird, and 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 this has been such a better season, and people have yeah. been sweeties. They've been getting along. They've been kind to each other. They've been trying to solve problems and be helpful, and not just shoot them up all the time. Well, I'll have to go back through and and see what the heck was going on there, because I I remember that line, but I remember just kind of swallowing it at the time oh. and just moving forward. Uh, where do you think then? Um, to just take a completely different tack here. Um, <laughs> where do you think then? This fits on the uh, theoretical continuum of, call it Star Trek wokeness then? Because <laughs> you rightly pointed out that there is, a, especially in TNG, there is no um, like toxic masculinity or like mm-hmm. masculine displays there. Riker is totally happy to wear uh, an earring and perfume if that's what they do on a planet. <laughs> uh, so uh, do you think that that is in the 24th century, they've reached that maybe at the time of Kirk and uh, the space 60s, it's a little more chauvinistic. Take it back to uh, Captain Quantum Leap. Uh, it, it could be, you know, a free for all. It could. Who knows? Like, do you think that humanity has continued to evolve then uh, to a certain point that we see uh, at the last sort of chronological time in the TNG era? So this is one of the one of the strange world building issues with Discovery, and because it, it in so many ways it feels like it's set after, because of the yeah. technology and it's you know yeah. it's only very loosely connected to that timeline, only really through sure. like Pike and Spock, because as as far as we've seen, because because yeah, the '60s original series was quite misogynist and that's sort of a reflection of its time, yeah. and this is set ten years before. So if it were misogynist, okay, you could say that that's within the the context, but we don't see any misogyny, and this is actually they finally introduced gay characters. Um, right. So, which is a, a failing of the other series is that they never really played around with gender and sexuality in that way. They just had equality, but the, you know, you never saw gay characters or people really acting outside gender norms. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the problem is, is the show hasn't established that. Like, it could be, it would make sense. It would be, it could be a thing that could happen that there's still misogyny, and it would yeah. be interesting to see like how like the last traces of misogyny and like racism got eradicated. But they haven't yeah. done that. Everybody's cool. Everybody gets along. The men are all real sweeties. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to go to your poetry reading, and yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, I mean, the practical answer is is that they were made, you know, in successive real world time periods. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering if if somebody wanted to, they could sort of make a continuum. Maybe the universe um, or the Federation becomes more woke and then regresses a little bit. Yeah. Uh, or like that episode with uh, Worf on Ryza where they've got that uh, <laughs> faction that wants to... I love to... that episode! Put your clothes on, everybody! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe they take over for a while and things go sort of backwards. And <laughs> People hate on that episode. and I mean, it's not a good one, but it's like, it's really one of the funniest episodes of of, next, of, TN, of uh, Deep Space Nine, I think, because it's just, <laughs> just, just Worf having a bad time on Sex Planet. And just like... <laughs> that that was the pitch too. <laughs> They're in the room. Guys, guys, Worf has a bad time on sex planet. <laughs> uh, I, I quote his final line like all the time, which is I am on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I um there was a line that I really love from uh, the episode most recently in Discovery, uh, where Saru was talking to Serana and she's fed up with him and she's like, this is a longer conversation. And that's yeah. basically code for like, okay, you're done. We're going to talk about this later though. Yes. So I'm adapting that into my vocabulary. <laughs> I like that. That's very, it's I, very usable. <laughs> I kind of went down a, a wiki wormhole uh, getting ready for this show and I learned a lot about utopian fiction. Mm-hmm. And I guess I always knew that there were a lot of utopian novels uh, written 
at the end of the uh, 19th century. But mm-hmm. I never realized what a response that they were to uh, the Industrial Revolution and um, all the societal upheavals that uh, resulted from it and how they inspired a lot of conversation and political theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I've been reading a ton of feminist utopian novels from that period. Mm, okay. And it's it's really interesting because they they all they imagine the reorganization of society. They often imagine them without men. Or entirely, they just get rid of sure. them. Or, or the men are very changed. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was a, a certainly a time of everything was changing so so rapidly that there was an idea that things could. I mean, things could change for the worse, but they could also dramatically change for the better in the future. And you could construct a society. And one of the reasons these novels are so boring is they often go through like, this is what the schools are like. This is what the government is like. And it's not amazing storytelling, but people are trying to construct a new world that would be a fairer one and a more equitable one and a more fun one. Yeah, it, it's like at the end of, uh, oh, it's uh, 1875 and every uh, two-bit uh, would-be political theorist is like, I can write. I'll just uh, I'll just take my thesis or, you know, my manifesto and then just give it some characters and yeah. now it's a book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like but it's should... basically just like, welcome to the utopia. It's the year 8009. Let me explain how our schools work. Yeah, it's not yeah. exactly riveting drama. It's not. You know, it's in the, in the 70s, there's actually an explosion of really great feminist utopian novels again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, Ursula Le Guin wrote, um, um, uh, The Dispossessed, of course, mm-hmm. which one's not as explicitly feminist as some others, but there's, uh, Joanna Russ wrote The Female Man, um, Marge Piercy wrote Woman on the Edge of Time, which is just wonderful. Uh, so it, it's, it's interesting that when utopian, utopian fiction rises up and there just hasn't, there hasn't been a ton lately. Uh, I hear Kim Stanley Robinson is pretty utopian, but I can't get into his novels. Unfortunately, I keep trying. Um, but yeah, there hasn't been. I I, I, I I read like one or two things recently that were more utopian. So I'm starting to get excited that maybe it, they're on their way back because I think it's an it's a really interesting and really difficult, um, really difficult genre in a way that dystopian fiction is is much easier. And yeah. there's been an explosion in that because it's much easier to imagine things are going to be worse. But to imagine what things are going to be like if things are better. And people are kind to each other, and then to maintain the drama within that, it's it's a it's a more interesting challenge, I think. I've also noticed that dystopias. I mean, we've got a lot of them, but I think that like out and out dystopias are mm-hmm. also on the decline. Uh, like we've got so many dystopias, they can't all be crapsacky. So yeah. You, yeah, I think of like say Blade Runner as the classic dystopia. You know, it's dark, it's rainy. There's giant billboards with geishas mm-hmm. eating sushi for some reason, and. <laughs> But a lot of cinematic utopias are like much brighter and shinier than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Like in the recent film um, Alita: Battle Angel, like the last of humanity lives in this city that's a scrapyard, basically. But it's always three forty-five p.m. on a sunny day, and everybody's wearing Gap fashion. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound so bad, does it? Yeah, right. <laughs> you can get fresh fruit, so it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's reasonable that people are absolutely terrified about their future and are trying to imagine. And and it's funny because you know, in this within the Star Trek universe. The 21st century has this incredibly dark period where there's a third world war yeah. and terrible, terrible things happen. But they arise out of that into the utopia. But yeah, it's I, I get why people are feeling feeling dystopia. Um, but it's Star Trek's not a dystopia. It can play with dystopian elements. Yeah. But I think at its and, and I think, it you know, it's funny because um, I think there is maybe a way that you could make it dystopian if you did like a future one, but you'd have to really show and explain how that happened. Yeah. And I don't think Discovery in its first season really gave us enough. They didn't give us enough world building in the first place to make it to make it clear why everything would have gone to shit just because they had a war with the Klingons. Because we don't ever really um, see explicitly what's going on in the Federation. Yeah. Uh, we don't see the effect on the people, really. We just they just they There's a lot of telling and not showing about mm-hmm. how bad things are. Yeah. There seems to be um, a fear uh, of the future in Star Trek storytelling. There's this push to... Every time they do something new, it seems like it's a prequel you know, or a reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's like, really germane to the exploratory bent of the franchise. I've heard it remarked uh, that, and I think you said it yourself, that this could have been a sequel series instead of yeah. a prequel series. And I wonder why they are afraid to move forward. And I wonder if it has anything to do with something else that I was thinking, which was as we get farther and farther into the life of this franchise, we're more than 50 years in now, mm-hmm. how much more does it seem like an alternate universe than just our future? Like you already mentioned, we're already past the point where 
we were supposed to be taken over by you know, genetically engineered supermen, yeah. and we're <laughs> only a couple years away from whenever uh, World War Three is supposed to happen. And so, if Trek does go another fifty years, you know, will they have to just soft reboot, or you, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. will it still represent? Uh, our aspirations represent us in the future or will it just be an, like an alternate universe? Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought of that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, they can, it's something that like Marvel and DC have done. They sort of like, you know, soft sliding the time scale when they have to. Yeah. Like you Tony know. Stark was wounded in Vietnam like, yeah. before hostilities had begun. Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, it's, it's always possible to sort of reset that. Um, yeah. I, you know, I cynically, I think the fear of doing a sequel series is because the real impetus for the for CBS behind making this show is it's not really to make a show for the fans it's to make a show that extends the franchise and you know sells ad dollars for the you know for the commercial breaks and yeah. you can you know make associated com- consumer products and Funko Pops around it and, and and they're they're starting a lot of new se- every day like there's another new Star Trek series that's happening that I, I find <laughs> oh, out yeah. about which is exciting in some ways, but I'm I'm concerned that it's done. They're just sort of throwing a lot of stuff at the wall, and they want to know what sticks. And it's it, it, it's in the same way that a lot of other companies that have control of pop culture properties are doing. They just there's at least one or two new movies every year. They want to extend the franchise to you know to, for corporate partnerships, for consumer products, for all these other there's all these other reasons that go into it that are not for storytelling. Yeah, ironically, it's it's very capitalist. The production of this mm-hmm. uh, socialist show. Yeah, it really is, and you know, and I think they might be concerned, like, oh, we'll bring in new viewers if it's set in in you know a prequel, but if it's uh, set post you know Deep Space Nine and Voyager, we'll have to explain all that stuff, and that's too much. Hmm. But we are but, getting yeah, our Picard but, show, so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, or people could just start watching it, uh, yeah. like you did with DS Nine, and yeah. not worry about it. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about Utopia several times before on the show, and um, I've actually referenced your article in some of those discussions. And the feeling that I come away with after those discussions is that I don't, I don't feel like I really know all that much about how the Utopia of the Federation is even supposed to work. Um, Picard says, you know, we don't pursue wealth, we don't put people to death, we value self-improvement, and so on and so forth. But I wonder, like, if the if we could really define the things necessary and the ins and outs of this society, maybe we could try it out. <laughs> I don't know. Like, can, can we really con- conceptualize it? You know, I talked to um, Manu Sadia earlier mm-hmm. uh, on the show and we were talking about the economic side of it and his belief that, that the kind of society that you see in Trek is just the natural endpoint of um, eliminating scarcity. Mm-hmm. Like there just won't be any, sure, oh sure, there'll be upheavals, but there just won't be any, Capitalism can't function if everybody has everything they want. Right, right. How do you? How does it give you more? Yeah. How yeah, do you I, hold things back from people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Manu Sadia's book. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, and I, I notice in it he has to sort of he he admits at one point he has to kind of because the economic stuff is is just in the background and it's just little hints here and there and he has to really piece it together from the tiny little bit that we're given. Or I mentioned before how we think of, or I thought of uh, Star Trek characters as aliens Mm -hmm. in some way. And I think they're really cutting down on that. And I don't know if it's because this is set uh, prior to the original series and TNG, but Mm -hmm. like, I I think they're trying to sort of eliminate the, the, the distance. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not much of a. It's not the same egalitarian portrayal that we, nobody's rehearsing Pippin in the Hold of Discovery. You know, they're <laughs> they're eating burritos. You know, and they're like, "What's up, dude?" And I think that we. I think it's a conscious choice to to make us connect more than you would with, say, Picard and Data. You know, playing mm-hmm. Henry V in the holodeck or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's I, there's a couple things there, and I think it's it's getting away a bit from this sort of like sort of traditional you know culture of Star Trek being around Shakespeare and. And, you know, it's sort of higher culture of the 20th century um, or you know, and, you know, before, like the 20th century ideas of like what high culture meant. Yeah. And, and, and people nobody are wrote a good play yeah. in, in 400 years. Okay. Nobody's written it. Yeah. This is a thing that bugs me. This is actually like something because and something that is bugging me a little bit about the season of Discovery is there's so many 20th century references. Tignataro is just 20th century reference every minute. And I'm like, what? In 21st century. And like, why? Did didn't nothing else happen ever? And it actually kind of begs the question: If is there any kind of popular culture in a post-scarcity world? 
Oh. Which is something I've oh, been Oh, I've got my new show. About. You're coming back for that show. <laughs> really? Oh, Wonderful. yes. I'm excited. That's great because, because okay, so uh, definitely things would be popular, but if nothing is, yeah, can you, I think I, I talked to Manu about this, like, can you market something mm-hmm. to uh, to an audience still? Like, is there a product? Is there something that you push? Or is it all just a, uh, a hierarchy of, of talent? You know, like, this right. guy is the best Vulcan Lyre player, so we all know about him, instead of, this guy's okay, but he's good looking, and the record label's really pushing him, so. Yeah, yeah. There is there no, marketing? Is there advertising? We, we know, occasionally they'll mention people who are, you know, well-known. Jake wants to be a writer, so that's a, that's a job. There's a writing school. Right. We know that people can be writers, but do you, if you just want to be a writer, you just publish a book? Do you need, do you, is there a publishing industry? Well, there is in Voyager. The doctor um, uh, wants to publish his uh, oh, hollow novel. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and he does have... And the publisher is actually uh, very unethical, which I thought was strange because <laughs> this is the Federation, right? He's a Bolian, and he sort mm-hmm. of... He publishes the book without the doctor's permission, and it causes this whole problem. And then he has to basically take him to court. Like, he sues him, and they go... They have an arbiter. Uh, I don't know if this is how courts work in the Federation, but they uh-huh. have an arbiter come in and, and sort of rule on it. And it's... I mean, it's all kind of a, a workup of measure of a man just with the uh-huh. doctor. But, right. yeah, that's... Wow, that's Right, forced arbitration in the future? I don't think so. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, all the lawyers are dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> they killed them all. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. I'd forgotten about that episode. Uh, yeah, so there there is... Is, there's still corruption that happens. There's still room to do things in this, even in a utopia. It doesn't have to be a perfect utopia. And and I I think a lot of times people think of utopias in, in utopian dreaming. Um, mm. Oh, I remember what I was going to talk about. There's <laughs> there was a moment in um, one of the one of the season two discovery episodes where Stamets I think briefly referenced the Green New Deal, not by name. But he was talking about how the Earth was facing like systemic, like environmental collapse, and they they did something all together and they saved it. And I like I like freaked out. I like spilled my tea. I was like literally jumped up and like threw everything. I was like, what? It's happening. It's official. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, Admiral Ocasio Cortez is on the line. <laughs> yeah. Did she make That's... a great admiral? I'm for it. She would not make <laughs> bad choices. She would make right. good choices. <laughs> yeah. Uh, too much dancing. It's a scandal. <laughs> um, so anyway, I mean, we've said it a couple times, but I think that uh, socialism is, is what we're talking about here. Yeah. And of course, uh, it's become a political buzzword recently. Um, and it's becoming a bigger part of the conversation, I think, uh, politically and economically. And I'm not a political theorist, but it seems like all utopian theory is pretty much trying to counteract the negative social effects of capitalism. So if we get rid of money, is that it? Is, is half the battle won? It does seem like a lot of the battle is won. It's funny, there's not really a tradition of utopian capitalist novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atlas Shrugged might be the only one, and that's very arguable, because an, a, a capitalist utopia is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Capitalist utopia is only for some people, so Galt's Gulch is the only utopian part of this dystopian world. Right. So you can only really imagine a utopia, if on, on, like a, a full utopia for everybody in collective terms. And it's hard to imagine that without doing something very dramatic to the money system. Uh, one of the many things I love about Deep Space Nine is that it has, it finally figured out what to do with the Ferengi and it has them yeah. as like the capitalist foils. And as much as you don't really get a sense of how the Federation works, you get a sense of how they work and how brutal it is. And it's played for laughs, which is great because it's sort of like they're relatively powerless. You know, this is sort of a tiny little empire. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so. I was actually just rewatching one of my favorite episodes, the Siege episode from season seven of Deep Space Nine. Um, it's Quark has this wonderful speech in it where he says that you know because it, it's set on this uh, like asteroid where um, Federation soldiers have been there for a long time defending this feudal position against um, you know encroaching hordes of Jem'Hadar all the time, and they're they're going crazy, and it's like very like Vietnam feeling. Right. And, and Quark has a speech, and he says. You know, if you take away humans' creature comforts, if you take away the food and holodecks and hot showers, they become extremely brutal. They are not nice people, really. <laughs> and I think he's totally 100% right. Yeah. And that I, I think that is, that is exactly like the only way we get to utopia is by having these nice things that make us not be terrible to each other. And nice things evenly distributed. <laughs> <laughs> That's, and it's interesting coming from a Ferengi. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if he is just trying to... 
uh, spoil, you know, his uh, nephew on being in the Federation. But does that then mean, you know, the negative side are that Ferengi are okay with losing creature comforts? They're okay with not being satisfied. Uh, they're more patient. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that might explain why Rom has. <laughs> this labored so long uh, <laughs> under the yoke of his brother is because maybe he feels sometimes that he's not getting what he deserves, but maybe there's a Ferengi, something about the Ferengi personality that's like, that's something will come or, you know, mm-hmm. my, my fortunes will change one day. Yeah. But yeah, you take uh, you take a couple uh, hot showers and some meals away from humans and look out. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the, the lie of capitalism that you just have to sort of bear with it and work hard and it's going to be all right. And, <laughs> yeah. and Rom organizes a strike because it, it doesn't work it does. out. It does. Does go too far at one point, yeah. Well, uh, as we kind of wind down here, uh, I was <laughs> curious if you. Uh, I was trying to come up with a, a list, um, or just a, like a handful of episodes that really um, test the clayness of the feet of the Federation in terms mm-hmm. of their utopia. And I had trouble kind of putting one together. Um, usually, when something is seen as problematic, it's never something that's um, institutional. It's always like a rogue actor who is for some reason doing something and they're Mm -hmm. eliminated at the end of the episode and they're never brought up again. Um, So I was thinking of something like conspiracy where, you know, the meat spiders are going to take over. (laughs) Um, That's so gross. Yeah. Uh, Or like, um, like you said, like um, the AR five, eight, eight, that's clearly an extreme situation. There's uh, the episode of TNG where they find out that warp drive is like destroying the galaxy. Uh. But then they just kind of forget about that and yeah. they don't go back to it. And so I was wondering if you could think of any specific uh, examples of hmm, maybe this uh, utopia is not so great. Um, there's a couple. You know, it's funny because actually thinking of Discovery, one of the arguments that they could have made that could have worked really well if they set it up properly. Because so now, now that Pike is captain, everybody's a sweetie and everybody's really sweet to each other. And, and I think, as, as you said, in one of your Discovery recaps that he's like the he's like the cool teacher. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, he's he's like he's all letting them he's letting them hang out. I mean, they don't actually hang out and have fun, but you know they they can talk back to him. They can go raring off on adventures, and he just yeah. says, you know, good for you. Just call me Mr. Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, one of the arguments that could have been made if they'd done it properly is that Lorca is a who was from an alternate universe and wasn't really a Federation guy was really domineering and really, you know, authoritarian, and that's why everybody was super scared and frightened all the time and not kind to each other. And so if the Federation is so fragile, if the Federation ethos is so fragile that just one bad captain can cause that much, that many problems, because yeah. that could have been really interesting. But again, they didn't really go there. Um, and when you have a, a, a you know, a, a supposedly beneficial military and you are very used to getting your um, free Cajun food at uh, Cisco's, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, when suddenly one admiral wants to take over the entire planet, like in Homefront... Yeah. Uh, everybody's like, okay, fine. And it's like, yeah. Whoa, no, that's not fine. <laughs> Wait. That would be, and those would be the two episodes I, w- I would point to, that, that two-parter, because it is it is amazing how quickly everyone is sort of fine with, uh, you know, military occupation of their streets. Everybody but Joseph Sisko, it seems, who's the moral yeah, conscious of the story. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's that, I love those two episodes. It's, when people ask me where to start, even with Deep Space Nine, sometimes I say start with those. Huh. Because there's such a, you, you need some backstory to, to know what's going on, but it's such a good, like, these are the stakes of the utopia and they're, it is fragile. It is, you know, it, these people aren't used to a fight. This is, um, the, 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 the boring group in the, in the Riza episode and Worf's vacation episode, that's their complaint is that the Federation is too soft and they're too easily controlled. <laughs> and they like frightened sheep who like to, you know, they just like to go to sex planet and have fun. Right. Right. And that's not totally unfair criticism. <laughs> you know, sex planet isn't the problem, but that's not, you know, that's, one of the problems of utopia is people will be maybe become too chill and too used to things being done for them. Yeah. And in times of crisis might be too easily shepherded. Um, is everything yeah. okay where you are? Yeah, I, I know. I'm, so I'm <laughs> under, we're under attack. No, I just, just Brooklyn. I know okay. it's like the fourth siren that's gone off. I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> well, I'd like to believe, uh, and maybe in a, um, in a TV show where we focus on like main characters, this isn't true, but I'd like to believe that society will go forward anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. um, I really love the uh, culture series of novels from um, mm-hmm. Ian M. Banks. And in his books, there's this 
society called the culture. They're very much like the Federation. And the books cover, you know, maybe a thousand years of time. And every book is about a particular person from that and something's going wrong or they've got a problem or they're caught in some political um, intrigue. But the society keeps developing. Mm -hmm. And every book, there's some worry that something's going to go wrong. And it just, you know, life just goes on. They found the right answer. It's this, you know, socialist, uh, anarchic uh, utopia. And it's t- it's going off like gangbusters, you know? Yeah. And so even if we don't follow those characters into the future, everything's fine still in the universe. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm fairly sure that when we see the Picard series, um, we're going to, I think we're going to slide into a soft dystopia. Mm. But, and yeah. I think, and actually, you know, to be honest, that's probably the best way to go for storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want it just to pick it up and he's old and, everything's even better than it's always been. Like everybody can fly or something like that, you know, or, um, you know, you know, cause I just, cause I want to believe that, and this isn't good for drama, but I want to believe that they have found the formula that right. is going to keep going into the future. You see the utopia can be challenged. I, I don't mind them going even to a soft dystopia though. I'd hate to see poor Patrick Stewart suffer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't mind that, but it's what is the trajectory of the broader universe? Is the universe trending up? If it goes into dystopia, why? It has to be really clearly, these are the things that went wrong. And again, this is what Discovery Season 1 didn't establish. Why were things so dark and so terrible? Why were they so willing to commit genocide? You you have to tell us what is happening in this world. You have to, you know, did people lose their showers and and their meals? And was that it? But it's got to right. it's got to be in the storytelling for us to see it. Um, Picard's back. He hasn't had a shower or a meal in two <laughs> weeks. Yeah. Gross old man, Picard. I'd watch Did it. You... <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to uh, comment at all about the Section Thirty One uh, Giorgio series? Oh god. I mean, I think we've been dancing around it this entire episode. Uh, but... So that's because that's the thing. As I'm watching the season two, I'm like, okay, well, this could go in a way that you know, like. Section 31 could be the heels of the show. And it's just like it is in Deep Space Nine where they're there and they're a threat and they represent a real concern. Yeah. And they, they have their own point of view, but they're the bad guys. I think if, if Section 31 is going to have its own show, though, then that's not the direction we can go. And I, I don't need – like there's so many TV shows now. There's that freaking NCIS. There's SWAT. There's Navy SEALs show. There's – I think there's an FBI show. There's so many shows right now that argue that like – Military operations and clandestine military operations that, you know, like the ends justify the mean shit that, that they argue that that's good. So there's a million of these. I don't need this in the space future. And I don't think these storylines are compatible. Yeah. I think it's always going to be weird. I think it's always going to be Admiral Bad Choices showing up and saying, you need to get along because we're nation building and it makes no sense. I think that they can pull it off if they do. Um, well, if they take my advice and do what I say, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure they will, <laughs> because uh, of course the whole thing's being run by um, Alex Kurtzman, who bless yeah. you in your article, you call a <laughs> relentless mediocrity. Which, uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on board with that. Yeah. But anyway, um, he seems to be a better TV producer than a, a movie writer or a director, and I think if they can do um, this idea that I've got, which mm-hmm. is show a continuity from now until uh, when we meet Section 31 uh, for the quote-unquote first time in DS9. Mm -hmm. And I think that what they're doing, that scene that you had a problem with and you didn't understand, I think that that's part of it because we see that Leland, he's a black ops guy, he's cloak and dagger and all that good stuff, but he's human still. Mm -hmm. And his best friend or the guy that he went to college with or whatever, he can say, okay, you know what, I screwed up, I went too far. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, he's still a human being, you know, mm-hmm. and at some point, and maybe Giorgio will be the catalyst for this, at some point, they'll cross some line where they're not that way anymore. They can't yeah. be pulled back. They are just totally, you know, radicalized in doing what they're doing. And then that's when they'll go to ground and they'll disappear. And then, you know, 200 years later, they'll go, huh? Section 31, what? Right, right. I feel they're... like that's the trajectory. No, I don't know if that's how it's going to turn out, but I could believe that. That, that would work. And they wouldn't have their credit card badges anymore. Their black credit card badges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> the badges are so... I just kept imagining Garrick just, like, faced with that spycraft, just just unable to handle it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that arc would work. Um, what I don't want to see is the ends justify the means, and I don't want to see, as they did in, in the first season, the, you know, they represent the antagonist aliens as being less than human, as being, you know, cannibals, as being people who are stupid and, and need to, just don't understand what's going on. Yeah. As opposed to being a legitimate culture from their own point of view. that yeah. That's what I'm worried about is we're going to get more of that. 
because it's again it's this is the logic of empire and it's <laughs> yeah. super easy to replicate it without thinking about it yeah, now that Saru is uh, like leveled up, <laughs> I, I want to see more than I want to see other uh, Kelpian characters because they're yeah. all just like that one head, you know, with yeah. a blue blue shirt on. Yeah, so <laughs> like to see a little more variety. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. It's been a really great discussion. Where can people find you online? Oh, um, I'm writing for Current Affairs all the time. CurrentAffairs.org. We also have a podcast, um, also called Current Affairs. Easy enough. Okay. Um, I'm on Twitter as at FlutterSnipe. For now, okay. um, it's a long story, but why I have that name? Um, yeah, those, that's really it. And yeah, uh, follow Lyda on Twitter. She was uh, live, sort of live tweeting her uh, watching Discovery before, and it was interesting. interesting <laughs> insights. Very yeah, funny. I'm not watching it as it comes out exactly because they've just my schedule's crazy. So I just sure, want to catch sure. up with it randomly on a, on a random weekday night, and um, I'm live tweeting my feelings. I'm tweeting through it <laughs> <laughs> as one should. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thanks so much to Lida for talking with me. You can find her on Twitter at at FlutterSnipe and find her writings at CurrentAffairs.org, including her article, The Dismal Frontier, which I'll leave a link to in the show notes. I'd also suggest that you check out an article from one of her colleagues, Brianna Renix. It's called The Regrettable Decline of Space Utopias, and it examines the same issues that Lida and I discussed. That's also on Current Affairs, and I'll leave a link for that too. And I've got a link to a cracked article that references that zombie and vampires thing I mentioned in the interview. Thanks again, Lida. Hope to talk to you soon. During the interview, Lida and I both mentioned the writings of former show guest Manu Sadia and his book Treconomics, which is a succinct but comprehensive look at economy in the Trek future and what our society would have to change to see Trek become a reality. It's a great read with a lot of examples drawn from the various Trek series and films, and you can get it on Amazon.com by clicking the link in our show notes or by going to EnterprisingIndividuals.com and clicking through our Amazon banner. When you click through our banner on Enterprising Individuals and shop on Amazon, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark the banner, and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon.com, click through the EnterprisingIndividuals.com banner and shop away. And maybe you're saying, Amazon is responsible for the decline of the mom-and-pop bookstore and the overall centralization of capital. To which I would say, okay, okay, wow. It sounds like you would really enjoy Treconomics, so just get it however you feel comfortable and unseize, if you would, my means of reproduction. Thank you very much. But I would also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals, which is also something of a mom-and-pop business, and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount, and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content. Joining at our cadet tier, that's $1 a month, gives you access to our live shows and... It's a little early, but we're already lining up another live show for Convergence 2019. I can't say anything yet, but it's going to be big. You also get my DS9 rewatch recaps. I just released my recap for episodes 1, 2, and 3 of the second season of DS9. And coming soon, Bioneural Gel Yaks, my series of Star Trek Voyager recaps. You can tell I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, all of which are yours for being a cadet for just $12 a year. Joining at the Ensign or $5 level also nets you extended interviews from show guests containing off-topic discussions and outtakes. You also get access to Stellar Commentaries, our feature where we riff on classic episodes of the original series. Plus, you get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show, like what we're doing for our live shows this year. You also get EI stickers and a welcome letter, and we'll thank you live on air for your contribution. For less than the price of a cup of coffee a day, dot, dot, dot. We currently have a monthly goal, which, if we reach it, I'll do a Patreon Q&A episode, and we'll have a poll for a listener-selected episode that we'll cover on the show. So, get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join our crew, whether you're a citizen of a utopia or a dystopia or a fruitopia. Doesn't matter. All are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. 
And always the best way to support the show is to tell a friend about it. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Our top comment on social media this week comes from Twitter user Kara at at Zandara on Twitter on our last episode of Discoverage, our Star Trek Discovery recap show that airs live at 9 p.m. on Thursday nights. You can follow us on Twitter at EISDpod or on Facebook to listen to the show. We were talking about slightly spoilery events on that night's episode of Discovery, The Sound of Thunder, and I suggested that if Kelpians lose their ganglia, they should put them under their pillows, and maybe in the morning they'd get a nickel from the ganglia fairy. To which Kara replied, Ganglia fairy, smiley face, yes. Sounds like that was a hit. Maybe it would make a good t-shirt. I'll talk to the design department about that one and see if we can come up with something. But in the meantime, you can sample some of the designs we've already created on our TeePublic store at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash just enough trope. All one word. We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts, tanks, mugs, phone cases, posters, you name it, all featuring snazzy Trek art and designs. Clothe your nakedness and support the show at the same time. Thanks to Kara for your comment. For winning top comment this week, you will receive a year's supply of Ganglia Fairy Flypaper. I mean, they're cute, but they can get really bad in the summer months. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcasts listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on enterprising individuals. Picture this. You're a captain of a prototype starship. You're minding your own business. You're on your way to watch Rosemary's Baby. Then wham! You wake up on SETI Alpha 5. Your back hurts. You've got a Vulcan bowl cut. And your first officer is making you eggs, telling you Earth blew up, and you've got time-traveling parasites in your brain. But where did the orange juice come from? Peter Byrne of Trek vs. Trek joins the show next week to talk about an episode of Star Trek Enterprise that shows us a federation that has lost everything and the lengths that Archer will go to to get it back. It's Twilight, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs>